listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Uh, so last week was um, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, rendezvous, and it was all online this year because of COVID. Um, the big gathering down in Missoula was canceled, but um, yeah, they rallied together and had a whole week worth of um, online events and stuff. Like, what did you, what did you think? Yeah, it was it was really good. Yeah, they did yeah. a great job. Yeah, it was uh, it was well well done for especially being short notice like that and yeah a lot of people worked harder than it what it looked to um to get uh to get that pulled off so yeah no it was uh and and for kind of being like the first first of its kind thing that was done like that like a big big conference like there was you, you couldn't call on anybody that was an expert yeah <laughs> in that yeah well and the end there was like no very very little technical difficulties like nothing was like there was the one the one evening where there was a little bit kind of of a laggy thing for everybody yeah. but other than that it was it was really it was uh, awesome yeah. what what stood out for you what something um i really liked the kelly gallup streamer fishing oh, okay thing. Yeah. yeah i watched i watched that one um yeah it's just kind of cool to hear he's like a streamer fishing guru <laughs> and so it was kind of cool to, to hear him hear him talk about learn it. his strategies yeah the, uh, the bird yeah. dog one was good too it was it was more like dealing with the upland but you know a lot of the same principles for yep yeah i really like the um that one on uh, uh predation dynamics in yellowstone with yeah. dr Stoller. That yeah was, i watched that one that was pretty good yeah. a lot of um a lot of mis um, conceptions about what happened to the Yellowstone elk herd and the reintroduction of wolves yeah. and, and bison and other predators. It, it was, it was really, that was really, really good. I liked that one. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was cool too. Cause it was, it was like the whole week long, but it was just like a couple hours in the evening. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Doable as opposed to eight yeah. hours of solid. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, um, I think it was good, good, uh, Good time spent last week, so thank yeah. you, uh, BHA, for Rendezvous 2020, and hopefully we can all see you in Missoula for t- in 2021. So, yeah. uh, one of the things that really stood out at the end of that thing um, was that Patagonia film. Yeah, Public Trust. Public Trust. Um, yeah. That should be coming out, um, like on the intraweb there uh, where it's it'll be a pay-for-view thing i uh, even if you're in canada i would recommend if you see that come up uh watch that film um it's about um the fight in the united states for their public lands uh it is gripping it's a gripping story um but i would say watch that so that you can um have the knowledge and the awareness to be on the ball about what's happening in Canada. Um, I don't think we're beyond uh, what's happening in, in the U.S. with their public land. So, yeah, I would encourage you, um, pay some money and watch that Patagonia film, Public yeah. Trust, if yeah, you get really a chance. Good. Yeah, BHA is a great organization. I really like them. They're, um, they're really progressive. Um, they got good leaders. They got a really clear vision that's easy to get 
your membership behind. And yeah. one of the things I liked is um, they're just a really positive, um, supportive culture. Yeah. I mean, we were sitting we were sitting there watching the uh, the comments roll in the sidebar there when um, Dr. Stoller was talking about wolves, and like I'm thinking, like, man, if that was here, there wouldn't have been a three quarters of those people wouldn't have said something nice. Yeah. In the, yeah. And, but everybody was supportive of the science and balanced mm. predators and all this kind of stuff. And I think that just speaks to their their culture and sort of caring about about everything on public lands in the United yeah. States. And, one of the, I can, one of the presentations somebody said I thought this was kind of cool um, about BHA. They said this is not your grandfather's sportsman's organization. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. and I think that's why they're attracting the younger demographic. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I look forward to BHA uh, growing here in Canada. Um, like about a bunch of episodes back, what Bill Hannon was telling us about sort of the parent organization in Canada that they're working on. So mm-hmm. I really. Uh, Really look forward to uh, helping support and grow BHA in Canada and Canadianizing it. So. Yeah. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Hall, um, host of the show. Yeah, and co-host Curtis. So this um, this episode uh, kind of has got a theme. Uh, I kind of call it the quest for truth and honesty. So I've got a couple. Uh, dive into a big controversial topic going on here in BC over the last week. But... One topic I want to start with uh, is some stuff about uh, bears and bear hunting uh, here in British Columbia. Did uh, did you see that anti-hunter animal rights activist article? Yeah, the one. So, so there's this um, some shit floating around on social media right right now from um, an animal right anti-hunting group um, on Vancouver Island, and. Um, so there were some hunters out. Uh, they harvested a black bear, and they had it set aside probably while what I kind of gather is getting their gear together because they have to travel to go home. And these people came along and saw it there and were horrified, and they took a bunch of pictures. And they went away and, and fabricated this big uh, story uh, about how this bear had been tortured. So the they took a picture of it, and what it looks like to me is like, this bear had been harvested and cleaned, like split open. You know, the guts removed, the brisket was split, split really nicely, like real clean looking job. And then it was propped up against the base of a tree. And I kind of suspect it was propped up there in order for it to cool. Cause you know, yeah. as you know, at this time of the year, if that thing's the side that's laying on the ground, if it's warm, that meat could spoil in a matter of a couple hours. Right. So to me, the picture looked like uh, a really, um, good field care of, of the bear meat. And then on the branch in front of where the bear was, there was a beer can stuck on the end of the branch. You know how like people do it when they're, yeah. they're plinking with a 22. So anyways, these, these, uh, animal rights people saw this and they took pictures of it and they wrote this big article about how this bear was tortured and yeah, the article all, was like, like bear crucified, crucified. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> So they, they, what did they do? Hold the bear at gunpoint and then tie him up to a tree and then, you know, do like the, the, the Hollywood horror movie thing where I'm like, good God. Um, so anyways, uh, I feel bad for, uh, hunters on Vancouver Island this year. Yeah. It's like, man, careful over there. You guys, I don't you take a shit in the woods right now and something's going to. Something's going to blow up in your face. But um, so, so, you know, to me, I don't think there's anything bad happened. It just looked like, you know, 
like I said, just proper meat field care of, of meat and stuff. And they've taken it and blown it up into this, this anti-hunting article. Um, anyways, this, uh, this article's got some more stuff that I've been seeing on social media, trying to make, uh, you know, hunters and hunting in BC look bad, especially bear hunting and, uh, some of the lies that are being, uh, thrown out there, uh, is this thing about the number of bear tags that have been sold uh, in the province so far. And these anti-hunters are comparing um, tags sold this year to last year. And they're saying those 4,800 tags have been sold versus 1,600 tags. And they're kind of talking about, like, the government's just giving away bear tags. There's going to be a big uh, uh, uncontrolled um, you know, slaughter on the bear population and there's no enforcement and, you know, all this kind of stuff going on. And even some hunters seem to be a little bit confused about what the, this numbers of tags things sold. So what that is, is the number of bear tags that have been sold in the first part of this year were 4,800 bear tags compared to the same time early in 2019 which was only 1,600 tags. So all it means is more people have bought their tags earlier yeah. this year. And whether it's because of COVID or just forward planning, uh, it's got nothing to do with the fact that there's going to be more bears harvested. So there's about 13,000 bear tags sold in the province of BC every year. And there's only about a 30% success rate. So between residents and non-residents, we're only harvesting... Um, just a little over 4,000 around, just under, just over 4,000 black bears a year in the province of BC, which is pretty much bang on uh, on the management targets for black bears for the province. And that's a super conservative harvest level. I kind of calculated that we may be harvesting only about, you know, between 2 to 4% of the black bear population in BC and digging around in the literature. Um, Experts are saying that black bears, uh, like in Montana, can uh, sustainable harvest rate on the black bear population is between 10 and 15 percent. Hmm. And in the eastern U.S., where they live in those hardwood forests, uh, sustainable harvest level of the population is like 40 percent. Wow! Because their bear populations just like through the roof. Uh, through the roof there, yeah. Um, and I've seen some other stuff like around the five to six percent, um, eight percent. So, anyways, um, you know, based on all those numbers, we're harvesting like well below what um, what we could harvest here in BC. And and um, so, you know, there's just some lies floating around out there. So the truth of the matter is, is so far at this point of the year, we haven't sold any more black bear tags than we have in previous years. The year's not over. We haven't harvested way too many bears because uh, the year's not over it'll probably be just a normal year like every year and and it's an ultra conservative harvest here in bc so um hey if you want to get a bear uh, for food um, get yourself a tag more tags that are sold i think that's great get mm-hmm. out there and take take uh seize that opportunity so there's this thing in uh, political science called the dead cat strategy. Have you ever heard of it? No. No. Okay. So the dead cat strategy, and uh, this is sort of a definition of it, is a tactic for when when you are losing an argument because the facts are against you, it's doing the equivalent of throwing a dead cat on the table. Oh. 
And so that's bringing up an issue that you want to talk about and that draws attention away from you and it forces your opponents to talk about your new issue instead of a previous issue or an issue that's out there. So that's the dead cat strategy. Um, Then adding on to that, there's this thing called dead cat conditioning, which is a sort of a, it's a, it's a thing that happens in politics for the most part. And it's basically like you just keep political parties, just keep throwing dead cats out yeah, and then people just like lock onto that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And it just keeps attention diverted away from things. And so the reason they do that is for social control. It, yeah. It's keeping control of the, the narrative and people. And um, so kind of a def, definition that I found here of dead cat conditioning. Social control is maintained in part by the use of a strategy of distraction, which is designed to divert public attention from important issues and changes determined by the political and economic elites using a technique of flooding continuous diversions and insignificant information. Distraction strategy is also used to prevent public interest in essential knowledge that is then used to exercise control whilst ensuring those being under control are completely disarmed. So last week, the BC Liberal Party here in BC threw a dead cat on the table. And that dead cat was they launched this campaign that hunters in BC are out killing mother moose and their babies. So the the whole concept of the dead cat is that the hook is that no one can resist looking at a dead cat. Think about when you're driving on the highway. Like, you yeah. got to look at the dead cat, right? So so it's kind of a neat, um, neat analogy. But yeah, so we got a dead cat here in BC right now that's caused a bit of an uproar on moose management in the province and so I want to walk through this um, what's going on right now in the province and um, maybe give you some tools and some uh, ways of looking at these problems so you can kind of maybe better judge for yourself you know when these things come up so um, sort of a little bit on my approach uh, breaking down you know wildlife and hunting issues when when they pop up and in the round cad in the round canada podcast uh, one one or two episodes ago i've only got three out now i i talked about uh, a little bit about this uh, about the way our, our brain works and we've got this uh, emotional and rational part of our brain and uh, the emotional part is the stuff that people just react right away they fly off the handle they get yeah. wound up about something and it just it just happens right the rational part is like where you got to like stop and think things through and weigh out the options and you know and that part of the brain sort of advises you maybe what the best thing to do or say is well the the analogy i really like is the emotional part of our brain is like an elephant and the rational part of the brain is about like this little tiny guy that's on top driving the elephant <laughs> and it's basically like yeah the little guy can steer the elephant but if the elephant decides it's making yeah. a left turn there's nothing that driver can do and that's the way our brains are um that emotional part of our brain that instantaneous reaction to something we see like a dead cat um incites all of this emotional reaction and it takes logic 
and rational thinking out of the picture. Instantaneously, people can control us that way yeah. by taking away our ability to think rationally and logically about what's happening. Um, and dead cats do that. So one of the things that's really important in um, analyzing uh, an issue or engaging somebody on a topic in a discussion or an argument is uh, being aware of your own biases and beliefs, uh, your own value systems. And so in this, this discussion um, here, I'll just sort of lay out a few of my um, biases and beliefs just so you know where I come from. Um, basically to me, anything that is a legal hunt, it is both ethical and moral for the hunter to do it. Yeah. Um, we can have discussions about changing that based on what we're learning about the way the hunt in the hunt is is taking place and what it's doing to a population but it, as long as it's in a hunting regulations and a hunter participates it is both an ethical and moral thing for that hunter so it's just something i believe in um i believe the wildlife management needs to be science based um i believe that wildlife management needs a process um so that people can look at the management options and make choices trade of the trade-offs uh, I, that's something i believe in um, and to come right down to it uh, we'll get into it in this moose management thing but um, i believe in antlerless harvests i don't think there's anything wrong with harvesting female animals in a population as long as the population structure the dynamics and the science are there to say it's sustainable it's meeting management objectives and it's not detrimental to a population um, yeah. then I mean, I hunt for food, so and I and I think most people do. So, whether it's got antlers or not, um, it's still food. There are situations where the antlerless harvest can be used to achieve management objectives to reduce populations. Uh, mm -hmm. They do that in the eastern United States, and you know where you allowed two, three, or more, you know, does. Um, there's some places where, like antelope tags like in wyoming some management areas there where they got so many antelope that uh i don't know if they still have it but i remember reading where you have to fill your doe tag before the state will issue your buck tag mm. so they know that the um the harvest of of doe to buck ratio is yeah. so they they control the tags that way so um this was something i mentioned on the show before this is from um um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the the astrophysicist, celebrity astrophysicist. Yeah. He's so funny, so smart. Um, and this was off a Rogan podcast, and, and I wrote this down, and I've said it a few times. He said there's three truths. There's objective truth, which is something that means it's true for everybody. That's generally what science produces. That just says this is the facts. This is true. The sky is blue. You can measure it. It's true for everybody. Then there's personal truth. And a personal truth is something that's just true for the individual. Uh, and then there's a political truth. And that is a truth that if something gets repeated enough to the public, then everybody thinks that it's true. Yeah. He said that governance needs to be based on objective truth. And we can't govern our society by imposing our personal truths on each other. So my bias or my belief is wildlife management needs to be based on objective truth. So we can use 
people's personal experiences um, to help understand. But at the end of the day, we have to have some sort of objective measure that puts information on the table to make decisions or choices from. So that's just, that's me. Um, a couple other strategies I use when I'm looking at these controversial topics is um, I have this technique. Uh, it was taught to me actually by somebody I work with. And he said, uh, <clears throat> when things kind of get crazy, he said, uh, do this thing. He said, go to the balcony. Just, just get yourself out of the room, go up on the balcony and look down on everybody. And that will help bring some clarity on what's unfolding. So when you're down there on the floor, it's kind of like all crazy, you know, but when you go up on the balcony, you can kind of see the big yeah. picture and then you can start to sort of go, oh, okay, you can see the power plays, you can see the agendas, you know. And, um, so, so that's kind of a neat thing, just, you know, go to the balcony. Um, the other one I like is from the Sherlock movie. And uh, uh, there was kind of the thing where the, the game is afoot. Yeah. Right? So what is the game? So when a dead cat comes out, like we got right now, <clears throat> the game is afoot. So what is the game that's going on here? Um, now, another thing that's uh, uh, interesting, it's kind of like uh, it's positional analysis or, you know, it's uh, basically it's saying in this, this dynamic or in this situation, who are the players? Like, who are the players involved in what's going on here? And then what is their motives? for their position or what they're saying. Everyone has an agenda. Doesn't always mean it's right or wrong. If somebody's agenda is to cause harm, then yeah, that's wrong. We should do something about it. But everybody has an agenda. Um, so a lot of times in these conflicting situations, it helps to sort of go, what is their agenda? What are their motives? I mean, I have an agenda, um, you know, by what I'm doing right now. So, um, and then the other part that I kind of, uh, an approach that I use is um, I don't have to have an opinion or position on everything that comes up. I can understand it and just kind of be like neutral, set on yeah. the fence. Um, or I can actually come to the conclusion that uh, the whole thing's just a waste of time and I don't care. You know, I've, yeah. looked, I've looked into it and it's like, yeah, there's nothing going on here. I know what's more important. I know what's more important for the future of hunting and conservation, and that's where I'll put my energy, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so those are just some some tools that I use to approach things. In the last episode, we had um, Adam Ford on. Yeah. And uh, he was telling us about this whole concept that him and a bunch of his colleagues are pulling together called misplaced conservation. So got some good feedback on uh, on that episode. So yeah, I mean, thanks Adam for for doing that. Look forward to having you on the show again. So what we've got here um, with this dead cat here in BC is it we have an opportunity to apply. Uh, it's a case study. We have an opportunity to apply what he taught us about miscon misplaced conservation. So that's what I'm going to try to do here today. So we'll see. Adam can send us a grade. <laughs> afterwards and Marcus tell us whether we did it's all, it's all virtual so he has to pass us um, so if you remember from that episode misplaced conservation is kind of this idea where in conservation people do things um, and they either by intention or it's unintended um, these things that they do or say or whatever um, it messes up conservation and pre prevents conservation from being effective. And 
that can be um, direct or in, you know or intentional or unintentional. And that was kind of the what misplaced conservation is these things that's going to mess up, mess everything up. Um, it kind of talked about two big areas of misplaced conservation: is things that create polarization and misinformation or fake news. And then he uh, he identified kind of these uh, these elements of misplaced conservation, uh, and I've got three of them. I'll I'll go through here. Um, there was the misinformed um, supporters. There was um, alienated partners. And then there was delegitimized evidence, uh, war on science, basically. So, so this uh, there's lots of people been writing me in about this um, this uh, killing mother moose and their babies thing, um, and they're confused. Uh, people are writing in, kind of saying like, "Oh, well, should I or shouldn't I? I don't know what to support and kind of thing." And so, whenever people are confused in an issue like this, that's a red flag. Yeah, that there's something something going on. And one of the things Adam said that was, uh, you know, part of um, people's confusion and the misinformation that gets injected into confusing people is that lies spread faster and deeper than the truth so you know a little bit of what i'm going to do here today like i said is try to you know inject some some truth and honesty into this um this topic here in bc so 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 this dead cat that the 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 liberals tossed out last week um needed to confuse people so i'm sort of like what are they up to um what's their motive for for doing this all of a sudden and I think it's pretty obvious they're not the party that's in power and yeah. there's an election coming up in a couple of years and they want to get reelected and so they're trying to make the current government of the day um, look bad and so in order to do that and get control of the conversation they threw out this dead cat of hunting tags being issued for antlerless moose. I mean, BC is kind of like politically, it's kind of interesting because you can just about split the province in half, like, like lengthwise. And the west half of the province is NDP and the eastern half is liberal. Yeah. Except for the West Kootenays. Around Nelson, that's NDP. So, I think the Liberal Party, that's uh, the MLAs that have the seats in these areas, are mostly in rural BC. So they're looking to garner the rural, the rural vote, right? Um, and they're kind of going about it in a controversial way. But I think that's their motive here in um, throwing out this. Um, uh, antlerless moose thing. Now, part of the confusion that's going on here is there's two issues getting mixed up. And there's the the issue of the science of caribou recovery and how moose population management is part of that. It's called primary prey reduction strategy. And then there's provincial moose management. 
the management of moose everywhere else in the province mm -hmm. other than in the caribou recovery zone. So whenever you see this, these polarized debates come up where something is all of a sudden either or side, you're either for the harvesting of antlerless moose for caribou recovery uh, or food or you're against it. That's a red flag because nothing is really that binary. There's always these nuanced parts of it. So that's just something to keep in mind is when you see polarization in hunting or conservation, we've got some potential for misplaced conservation elements going on here because somebody's trying to create the either or yeah. side A against side B. Um, part of what's confusing things I think is the media has brought in this fella from the interior of BC that's got this um, sign program that he's been on of like don't shoot the cow moose signs and they're all over like central and north, northern BC and I mean that's that's injecting some misinformation into this discussion about the science of caribou recovery because as far as I know, that campaign really has nothing to do with caribou recovery conservation. Um, from talking to some indigenous hunters up in Fort Nelson when I was up there, um, there are some issues in northern BC in moose management in indigenous communities and their traditional territories. And there's some um, differences of ideas from elders on when you stop harvesting a cow moose and when some of the community's hunters are still going out in the wintertime harvesting moose. Mm. And I understood from um, this fellow that I got to know quite well up in Fort Nelson that there's some tension going on over there over their moose management programs. Yeah. And I don't know for sure. I mean, I could be wrong on this, but I know um, part of the sign campaign was um, trying to promote um, the message that the elders are trying to communicate in these communities is not to be harvesting cow moose because their populations are depressed up there. And, and they know, they know from their history of what, what they should and shouldn't be doing. So, but, but anyways, this, the media has grabbed onto this guy. Um, they've kind of brought him into the picture here. And, and I think it's, uh, it's a different issue. It's a different topic. Um, but that's lending to some of the confusion that's happening here. Um, there was a uh, um, an interview on the radio. <clears throat> I think it was the Kelowna, not Kelowna, uh, Kamloops, Kamloops radio station, and they did an episode on on this um, sort of hot topic that blew up here last week. And they had um, <clears throat> um, MLA uh, Peter Milabar on um, MLA of uh, Kamloops North Thompson, and um, the uh, had him on the radio show, and he said that uh, um, the government was, uh, if I remember this right, uh, his words, um, trying to eradicate baby moose. <laughs> I mean, it was, that was that was the words, right? And I mean, this kind of falls into the notion of misplaced conservation because that's misinformation. So yeah, this program is not about eradicating baby moose; it's about stabilizing moose populations in the caribou recovery areas. So that got injected into the conversation. Um, so 
the interesting thing here is the Liberal Party actually started um, this predator-prey reduction program, um, you know, back in um, when when they were in power, and um, the proportion of antlerless animals um, that are being harvested in those areas are an order of magnitude lower now than they were 10 years ago. So overall, the number of um, antlerless tags that are being issued and animals that are being harvested um, have actually been coming down over the last 10 years, but the moose population is still growing over the last several years in those caribou recovery zones. So, um, and then um, there was um, some other radio um, interviews that happen. Uh, Jesse Jesse Zeman, uh, Director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration of the BC Wildlife Federation was on, uh, kind of interjecting some facts, you know, about the science behind caribou recovery versus um, provincial moose management and moose populations and um, helping to clarify that a, a little bit. And, you know, basically he said that most of British Columbia's moose populations are in decline and uh, except for, you know, in a couple of key uh, caribou recovery zones. Uh, on a CBC radio interview, uh, they had um, uh, Director of Fish and Wildlife, uh, uh, Jen Salakis, on, and she said that in 90% of British Columbia's moose populations, there is no antlerless harvest. Yeah. So over the vast majority of British Columbia and the moose management areas, there's no cow or calf harvesting. So um, that was a good fact. I appreciate um, Jen sort of interjecting that into the discussion. Uh, she also noted that, you know, the goal was not about reducing moose populations from their current levels right now, but it was about keeping the moose population stable to prevent excessive moose growth in the caribou recovery zones, which in turn was going to help stabilize uh, the wolf population. So, um, you know, there's so so there's some facts and stuff around, um, you know, this that'll that'll kind of toss out here. So, you know, the the science on caribou um, basically is they didn't evolve in environments in North America with wolves. Um, they had this strategy of kind of going and living in like the harshest climates were, you know, and having big herds that ranged like, you know, from one side of the continent to the other. And, um, and that sort of allowed them to, um, live in places where there were not that many wolves. So at the end of the day, they didn't evolve to be that good in dealing with wolves. Yeah. So when wolves show up with caribou, they're they're a lot easier to take down because they just don't have. Where moose uh, evolved with wolves, so do elk. And remember in that that presentation of Dr. Stollers there on the BHA rendezvous thing, one of the things he said evolutionary-wise, what elk bulls hold their antlers so late into the wintertime is because they've co-evolved with wolves. Hmm. It's actually goes from being a mating thing of... Um, I'm the biggest and the best show yeah. cows to it's actually a defensive thing through Against, the yeah. winter time. So, um, and that's why they're super susceptible in that period right after they lose their, their antlers. Hmm. But caribou are not so good. Um, 
And then in British Columbia, in the southern uh, Caribou Range, along came logging, um, resource development, mining, um, hydroelectric dams. Uh, especially logging uh, creates uh, early seral habitat that moose liked. Moose got displaced, displaced by some huge reservoirs. Um, a lot of good upland habitat, and so they basically had these moose populations explosions in a couple of areas in the province and the wolf population increased and caribou became a bycatch. Yeah. And scientists have always said, and in fact, they first, scientists first started telling the government back in the 1970s that you have a problem with your southern caribou and we're starting to see uh, signs of decline and you've got this moose caribou wolf dynamic going on. And that was basically their recommendations to start protecting habitat and reducing moose populations and controlling wolves. Um, that was that was presented back in the 1970s, and it was literally ignored by by the governments uh, here in BC until about 2003, 2004, when they finally started to kind of do something about it. Uh, wolf control was actually held off until about I think 2015 and around 2017, where they finally actually started some wolf control programs in these caribou recovery zones. So um, one of the things that some of the recent research has discovered is that wolf control by itself, primary prey reduction, being moose population control, um, or even just habitat protection by itself, um, isn't showing a positive response in the endangered caribou herds. But what they have found is when all those levers are pulled, you're doing habitat protection, cutting off access, um, managing wolves, reducing moose density on the landscape, and augmenting with maternal penning, they've been actually seeing yeah. some positive responses. And if you want to get into detail a little bit more on this, if you remember back in episode two last summer, um, we had Dr. Rob Saroya on the podcast, and he talks about all this stuff with way more intelligence than I am right now. So go back and listen to episode two on caribou conservation with Rob. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Jesse said in his radio interview, moose are basically doing bad everywhere in BC, except for in the caribou zones. So like 90% of the moose populations across BC are in pretty serious decline. Yeah. And consequently, hunter harvest has been in serious decline, you know, as well. I think we're sitting at, over the last 10 years, I think hunters in BC have seen about a 40% reduction in moose harvest provincially. And from what I know as well, you get down to some of the specific management zones or regions and that reduction's even greater. It's like well over 50% reduction yeah. in what hunters are, are getting now than they were 10 years ago. Um, but overall, in these controversial areas about primary prey reduction, um, stabilizing or reducing moose populations. Overall, um, the number of antlerless um, tags for cows and, and the cow and calf harvest has actually been coming down. So there was kind of a big pulse about 10 years ago, um, and there's a significantly lower um, number of tags and, and harvest happening right now. So, And like I said earlier, the proportion of the moose harvest in those zones um, is like an order of magnitude lower than it was um, 10 years ago. So 
um, like like right now, there's this big thing about you know the the, the dead cat on the table is the NDP is um, um, the liberals are saying are increasing the number of um, tags that are going to be available to harvest mother and baby moose and. There's one area in the North Revelstoke caribou recovery area where they're going to propose to increase the number of permits from last year by 43 permits. So that that's what we're talking about, 43 permits. So in 2019, in the North Revelstoke area, um, within the caribou recovery zone and outside the caribou recovery zone, there were 357 antlerless tags issued and there were 79 antlerless moose taken. So that's the type of numbers. Uh, and even in all of this, the moose population is still growing in those caribou recovery uh, zones. So, um, I mean, this is stuff I've gleaned off people that know, you know, a lot more about, about these things than I do. So again, um, so the, the BC Liberals slapped this, um, <clears throat> this dead cat on the table. Um, and I got to come back to this question, you know, like why? What's the motive? Um, they want to get reelected. The dead cat strategy is you throw the dead cat on the table because you need to divert attention away from yourself or, or the, the facts that are in your face are, are, um, exposing your, your argument sort of thing. So, um, I, I think that's part of what's going on here to get, you know, their strategy to get reelected is, uh, you know, this may be one of many dead cats to come here, but to kind of divert attention away from, you know, their track record. And the BC Liberal Party has formed the government in British Columbia the most out of any political party since 1916. Um, the Socred Party, which doesn't exist anymore, um, dominated for qu quite a few decades. Um, and up until the last election, uh, 2017-16, um, the BC Liberal Party was in power in British Columbia for 16 straight years. So mm -hmm. when it comes to fish and wildlife management in the province, they did a lot in 16 years uh, and not necessarily a lot of good stuff. So so part of what I'm concerned about here is this, this, this dead cat... Um, you know, being, hey, look, they're killing mothers and their babies, um, is partly to divert attention um, in the rural communities away from this track record. So I was going to go through some stuff here um, that happened during the BC Liberals' governing of the province over the last 16 years. Um, they're the ones that allowed a tremendous amount of logging of the critical caribou habitat. So... There was a paper, research paper that just came out uh, like a week ago um, that said the Fed, when the federal government identified, um, legally identified critical caribou habitat in British Columbia, we carried on logging it. And to this date, we've logged 900 square kilometers of critical caribou habitat. So a tremendous amount of the authorization of that logging occurred while the BC Liberal Party was in power in the province. When they first started developing caribou recovery strategies and provincially trying to identify critical caribou habitat in the province, the scientists sat down, looked at the entire land bases of all of these 
um, endangered populations, and they said, here's your critical caribou habitat. And the forest industry flipped out. And so there was a tremendous amount of negotiations went on with the forest industry at that time to reduce that down to like the most critical of critical habitats. Let's call it that way. So in caribou management, they have what's called critical habitat and then matrix habitat. And the, ma- the critical is kind of like, you know, they really need this. They spend most of their time there, but they still have these buffering habitats, which they're sort of dependent on. So the, the, the notion of the day was, well, you can't protect all of that because the industry can't, the forest industry can't ex- exist. So they basically whittled all that down to a number that the forest industry said they could live with, which was around 2 million hectares of protected critical caribou habitat. What they have found, um, I believe they found, is they then logged into the matrix habitat and and they encroached right up to the doorstep of these critical habitat areas, where it's, which was essentially too small on the landscape. Yeah. And the caribou were still trying to come and go. And in that log matrix habitat that in the northern part of the, um, the range, the moose populations exploded in that, highly roaded, lots of recreation, brought the wolves. And then basically the caribou were in these little tiny patches over there trying to, a old growth trying to hide, right, and make a living. In the southern uh, end of the province, like where we are here in the south Purcells, um, that excessive logging in the caribou matrix, in the matrix habitat, brought uh, elk and white-tailed deer and brought cougars and wolves, yeah. which then basically drove, drove the southern population to right, right out of extinction. So... The, the BC Liberal Party, when they were in power, they're the ones that set up this limited entry antlerless moose tag system for caribou recovery. And when they first started doing it, their tag numbers were very high because there were some very aggressive objectives, like in the North Revelstoke, and bringing the moose population down quickly initially. One of the biggest impacts that's happened in British Columbia to moose uh, in the central interior of British Columbia was the salvage logging of the mountain pine beetle epidemic that swept through the central interior of British Columbia. And that was all authorized and sanctioned by the Liberal Party when they were in power. When that, um, when that epidemic first exploded, like, I mean, it's just like you know, before you knew it, it's like a wildfire. Yeah. It's like these beetles yeah. in one summer had just gone, like taken out like half the province almost. Um, the chief forester at the time commissioned uh, a bunch of ecological scientists in BC and say, I need you to look at all the forest habitat types that the mountain pine beetle have infected. And I need your advice on how best to balance timber salvage of the dead and dying wood with long-term timber supply, short-term timber supply, and wildlife values. Yeah. Basically, what this team of ecologists came back and advised the chief forester that I think it was, it's a really high number. It was around 70% of that area. The mountain pine beetle had infested mixed species stands. So they might have been forests that were maybe even as low as 10% lodgepole pine component. And what the ecologist said in all of those mixed stand forests, 
if you leave them alone, the mountain pine beetle is going to kill the pine trees. That's going to be lost to timber. Yeah. But you're still going to have wildlife habitat that's intact. They can deal with, you know, a bit of dead and dying trees, you know, in a forest. And those forests are still continue going to grow. Um, as the pine dies and opens up, um, some of the smaller trees are going to start to, um, you know, grow a bit more quicker, take over that open space, generate more timber volume. And they said, you're going to have, or you'll be able to maintain timber supply for rural economies sort of in the mid midterm in the future. So basically that was the scientific evidence that was given to the Liberal Party at the time when they were in power, and um, they ignored it, and they logged everything that they could get at. And to this day, if I'm still got my numbers right, that the mountain pine beetle salvage logging that happened in the interior of British Columbia is the largest timber salvage operation in human history. Wow. And it is where we've had some of the most significant moose declines in BC. So... Um, they, I, you know, I was also working in forestry, um, at the time when, you know, um, BC Liberals were in power, um, was right around the time the Forest Practices Code came in, um, started doing all this stuff like reclaiming roads and skid trails and partial cutting and, um, you know, wildlife, uh, trees and wildlife, all this ungulate winter range stuff. And then basically the four, you know, after 10 years, the forest industry is like, wow, this is way too much work. And, um, so it was, uh, you know, the liberal party that worked with the B, the BC forest industry and they basically like gutted the forest practices code. And so all of those provisions, in my opinion, that were actually, we were doing some really good stuff in, um, harvesting timber, but really creating and maintaining some good uh, uh, wildlife habitat out there. That kind of all went out the window, and that's when um, the whole uh, professional forestry reliance model and forestry kind of ushered in. And, and ever since that happened, man, like I've had foresters in government um, and enforcement officers basically say, like, they're just so helpless, um, you know, to see what the forest industry is now doing that they're legally allowed to do. And, you know, um, the regulator itself has no power you know to change that and those are all things that happened while they were in term um they were allowing um uh, moose habitat to be uh you know up in the prince george area to be herbicide sprayed so that you know the conifer trees could could grow and establish more quickly and um what i've been told is that equates to about forty thousand hectares of moose habitat you know, it's still going on under the current government. Um, so, you know, there's that. But, you know, one of the big things is, is over the last 16 years um, that um, when the Liberals were in power, they were still part of a successive generation of, of governments in power that had been defunding um, fish and wildlife management in BC. Um, they are the party that eliminated land use planning within government. So government used to have an entire department that was about putting land use plans together, Mm. having these big, you know, uh, big tent, everybody at the table, 
figuring out land use strategies, and then that is available to industry, you know, when they develop um, that whole concept. People that worked, that was all gone, and they axed a whole bunch of, uh, you know, land use plans that were already developed and, and being implemented. Um, this is also a time period when the Force Science Research Group um, within government was dismantled. So that's where our wildlife and ecosystem restor ecosystem researchers were in government. Um, and they were all got rid of, um, except for a couple of the wildlife researchers, uh, grizzly bear research um, expert who was in the Forest Sciences Research Group kind of stayed on, but they got rid of all of the ecosystem researchers. Um, still was a political party in power that chose not to uh, enact an endangered species legislation. Um, and like I said there, you know, there were 16 years of incrementally taking budget money and defunding all of the natural resource ministries, uh, fish and wildlife conservation and, and enforcement in the province. So, you know, <laughs> a lot of this mess with, you know, the caribou and having to deal with, um, you know, primary prey reduction to deal with um wolf calls um yeah i mean that's part of their track record the legacy that laid laid behind i mean there's a lot of rural economies in british columbia who depended on forestry is uh, no longer there because of that mountain pine beetle salvage yeah. um you know where the the advice to the government was was like leave most of it and these rural communities will have some level of timber harvesting to sustain them over the next you know 30 40 years um, so yeah, I mean, that's, you want to get elected by rural people in British Columbia. It's like, that's something pretty big that kind of needs to be yeah. the attention diverted away from, so to speak. So another part of, um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ford's, um, breakdown of misplaced conservation was his concept of alienated partners, things that are done to disenfranchise certain groups of people in the conservation tent. I just like it's just throwing somebody under the bus. That's yeah. <laughs> that's the best analogy I have. And a um, bunch of that's been happening here uh, over the last week over this um, antlerless moose uh, caribou recovery topic. And in that same radio show in Kamloops I talked about last week, uh, um, MLA um, Malabar said, that the ethics of hunting say you don't shoot mothers and babies. And to me, that's a statement that just alienates hunters. Yeah. I mean, yes, a government sanctions or regulates the hunt, but at the end of the day, the hunters are the ones that are out there harvesting animals they're legally entitled to under game management. And to say that ethically that that's wrong, I mean you're actually criticizing and saying that these hunters are are unethical. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's throwing a group of people under the bus, throwing hunters under the bus. Um, liberal uh, MLA for Nechaco Lakes, John Rustad, um, he was in print media um, interviews. So, you know, this is partly quotes and partly... Uh, um, what the um, the reporters said, but uh, in the stuff I read uh, about what um, MLA Rustad said, he said, um, says, 
at a time we need to be recovering our moose populations, allowing the shooting of baby moose and their mothers is quote-unquote unconscionable. <laughs> so again, it's a legal hunt of which they set up and endorsed for a long time. Now they're saying that if a hunter chooses to go out and harvest an antlerless moose with a LEH authorization, um, their, their act is unconscionable. You know, the intent might have been to say that the that the act of giving out an LEH authorization for an antlerless moose is yeah. unconscionable, but I mean, that's issuing a piece of paper. The rubber hits the road by the by the hunter that harvests harvested you know the antlerless animal. So I mean, to me, that's saying that these people that are going out there doing that as unconscionable human beings, and um, and that to me is alienating hunters. It's yeah. taking a group of hunters that have a legal right to do that and throwing them under the bus. Um, part of uh, you know what was happening to alienate hunters, I think, in this whole um, this whole dead cat issue here is um, um, the framing of the language uh, that they're they're using and the images that they're using in in their campaigns. And so the BC Liberal Party on their um, um, party website. They've got this campaign poster of a cow moose and a newborn calf, big red letters across the front of it about, you know, hunt, you know, whatever, killing mothers and their babies or something like that. You know, so again, this is a, this is throwing people under the bus. It's, it's misinformation and it's manipulating public perception. Um, so the perception here is, one, you're using the terms mothers and babies. Yeah. And when you say mother and baby, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? People. Human beings. Yeah. And this is exactly what they did in the grizzly bear hunt debate. Hunters primarily targeted big adult boars, but the images that were used in the bait to sway public opinion, they always showed a sow grizzly with little cubs and a set of crosshairs so that the public got the perception that hunters were out there shooting mothers and babies, and the analogy is somebody breaking into a home and killing a human mother and yeah. her newborn baby. That is the mental image that these campaigns want to create to trigger the emotion in people to be against that. Yeah. The raw part of it is, is you're thinking about somebody with their a human person with their baby. Um, so, you know, that part of it is using that term mothers and babies. And I mean, like, it's a cow moose. It's a juvenile moose. It's a calf moose. I mean, this yeah. is the language that's associated with animals. Mm -hmm. Mothers and babies are humans, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that was, you know, that was a little bit of, you know, what was happening is um, throwing hunters under the bus by making them look like we're, where, and, and the big thing with that imagery is of showing the mother and the newborn calf is you're creating the perception that we're out there right now. Hunters are out there right now. As these calves are being born, they're killing them. Yeah. And it's like, they're not. <laughs> these LEH authorizations don't come into play until the fall. fall. And that calf is like 300 and something pounds in the fall. Yeah. So, whether you're you're for it or against it, if you harvested a young of the year calf moose in September or October, that calf is bigger 
than most deer and elk and sheep and goats and like it's yeah. the size of a spike elk or a caribou almost like at that time right yeah like, you know a, a younger caribou um so so it's definitely they're painting a picture here that's throwing hunters under the bus making them look bad exactly like the grizzly bear hunt campaign let's make these hunters look like they're killing babies in the spring of the year um, that's a really manipulative, um, public relations spin to put on, you know, a topic like this. Um, there's been stuff even in, in social media and the news where, I mean, hunters in the province are throwing each other under the bus. There's people out there that are just, you know, have such strong opinions that you just do not harvest elderless animals. Um, and you know, that's triggered that big elephant part of the brain for some people and there's been published stuff of you know this hunter on hunter hate type thing and throwing each other under the bus and that's all part of this uh you know disenfranchising a segment of the hunting community and throwing them under the bus which all becomes part of this bigger concept of of misplaced conservation unfortunately um, the BC Guide Outfitters Association uh, jumped into the fray here. Um, some of the things that um, that were statements that were made there, uh, you know, I'm basically reading behind the lines that, you know, they're condemning the antlerless hunt, um, you know, saying that, um, you know, that, that they, were, they disagree, um, that reducing moose will save caribou, but I also kind of like read between the lines that that's basically condemning, you know, the antlerless hunt as well. And you know, and it's fine to have that position. Like, I mean, that's great. I mean, they have uh, interest to represent for their industry. Like I said, everybody has an agenda, um, which is okay. But, you know, in the spirit of, you know, being truthful and honest, you know, when you're talking to people, um, find it a little tough how an industry can say that, you know, antlerless moose hunting is, is wrong, um, but then actually partake in it. Yeah. So if... People need to realize this. The guide outfitters get 5% of the allowable annual harvest of those antlerless cow and calf LEH authorizations that are put out in those zones. Under the allocation policy in the province, they get a cut of those antlerless tags mm. and they're harvesting antlerless animals in those regions and they're filling their quota every year. Yeah. It's a small amount. It's not as big as the resident harvest, but over 50% over the last 10 years, about 50% of the antlerless tags that they've harvested have been juvenile moose. Hmm. So, you know, I don't know whether foreign hunters are coming in and paying huge dollars like to hunt here in British Columbia and take an antlerless moose or a young of the year moose, or I just don't know if these are like tags that are being used by their friends and family, like they're guaranteed, you know, yeah. every year, like a private meat hunt or whatever. Um, so that's throwing out a dead cat on the table. Um, <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the thing here is like n nobody's on the moral high ground. Um, so as long as you're hunting within the bounds of the law, again, to me, like, you know, it's fine, but 
But, you know, trying to alienate and disenfranchise groups, I mean, that's a history here in British Columbia of, and it's a two-way street of trying to perpetuate this polarization between um, resident and non-resident and the resident and the outfitters. Um, that's just part of this larger um, problem we have here in BC of misplaced conservation, of trying to disenfranchise each other. And, I mean, honestly, in the whole grand picture of game harvest in the province of British Columbia. Um, when you look at the non-resident harvest uh, from a conservation perspective, it, for the most part, it's really a non-issue. Yeah. When you look at the stats, like, I mean, they're harvesting like 5 per 10% of, you know, the amount that's being totally taken. Resident hunters are taking the lion's share. So if there's an impact of hunting anywhere on any species, um, you know, it's really an insignificant part what they're doing. But, but I think here is the thing is, is like you're coming into the conversation, you're presenting some information, you have an agenda, you're trying to get people to think a certain way. And it's like, you got to bring some truth and honesty to the table here. And part of it is, is like they're, and they have been for decades involved in the antlerless moose harvest in these, um, these areas in BC. Um, the other aspect of um, misplaced conservation that uh, Dr. Ford told us about was this concept of delegitimized evidence. So this is doubt-mongering, undermining, attacking scientists, or term I like to use is kind of like the political war on science kind yeah. of thing, right? So... Um, I've picked out a bunch of things uh, here in the last week on the the dead cat issue here. Um, so again, going back to the um, the Kamloops radio show with M MLA Malabar, um, the host asked um, asked him this question. Man, that host, I have to say, um, got into like talking about he'd done his homework. It was like, man, this guy knew the science. He knew everything that was going on in caribou recovery in the province. Yeah. And I'm like, like, it was a really good interview. Like, the, uh, I was really impressed by, uh, by that host. So, so the host asked uh, the MLA um, about the science of moose density reduction for endangered caribou recovery. And the response from the MLA was sort of along the lines of, quote, unquote, it doesn't feel right. And local hunters and hunters and, you know, and his riding and stuff are saying these things, you know. Um, and so that's part of this concept of doubt mongering about interjecting things into a conversation that has evidence and facts that are there saying or concluding one thing. And then you're doubting that by saying, yeah, but these people over here, they tell me that's not what's really going on, right? Yeah. And so, again, it comes down to that thing of objective truth versus personal truth. And I have nothing wrong with people's personal truths. I personally just don't think personal truth should be what others have to do. Yeah. It's not the thing that should drive game management, yeah. wildlife management in the province or conservation. So um, the caribou... Chilcotin, uh, MLA Donna Barnett, um, she was uh, quoted in a news article and she said, uh, there's no conclusive evidence that eliminating moose populations will starve out predatory wolves and eliminate their potential impact on endangered caribou herds, unquote. So 
whenever you hear somebody say, and especially a politician, I've heard our local MLA in East Kootenay say this uh, when presented with facts, you know, uh, evidence in wildlife management. It's not conclusive, though. The science isn't conclusive. There's no conclusive evidence. And that is a classic doubt-mongering war against science tactic yeah. is to use that word. There's science, and a scientific experiment has been set up. <clears throat> they've controlled for things. They've collected some data. They've analyzed it. And they say statistically, you know, on average, plus or minus this much, this is what the data is telling us. Yeah. There you go. That's objective truth. Do, do with it, you know, what you want. That That's the process of science. So when those facts are presented and somebody comes along and says, well, here's a data set that actually shows something very different and I'm going to put my facts up against your facts and let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But what they do is they criticize or they attack the science or the scientists saying, well, well, that's not conclusive. That's just an estimate. And it's like, that's the process of science, yeah. right? The average number of moose in a population is a thousand plus or minus 200. Well, it's not conclusive then. You don't know how many moose is out there. And it's like, well, that's how science works. It's yeah. got these confidence limits around uh, estimates and stuff. So, so, so that is part of this doubt mongering is throwing in that, but the evidence isn't conclusive, right? Um, I think same same news article, uh, Liberal MLA for Nechaco Lakes, John Rustad, um, said in one of the articles that the NDP plan to, uh, okay, the hunting of mothers and babies is based on the quote-unquote misguided belief that culling moose will reduce wolves, the prime predator of caribou. Um, it's flawed thinking. Wolves are smart. If they don't have moose to eat, they will go out and chase the caribou. It just doesn't make sense whatsoever to be taking this kind of approach. So part of the doubt mongering here is we don't use belief systems to manage public wildlife. That's where the science comes in. That's where the objective evidence and the data comes in. We can make choices based on what the evidence is telling us, but we don't and should not be managing wildlife on belief systems. That's how we got the grizzly bear ban, was on a belief system. Um, and again, coming back to this just doesn't make sense whatsoever, you know, to take this kind of approach. I mean, it was his party in power that actually started yeah. this program based on the scientific advice that was given to the party, right? So, you know, to turn around and attack the science, uh, it, I just... Don't see the credibility here. Um, it's just, you know, like it is. It's war on science. It's trying to under under undermine what's going on. Um, so Scott uh, Scott Ellis, executive director of Guide Outfitters of BC, um, he was also interviewed as well in the newspapers. I know Scott. I mean, he's a good guy. Good guy. He does his job for um, Guide Outfitters of BC. I mean, I had nothing nothing against. Uh, outfitters. I mean, our family had an outfitting territory for forty-something years. Yeah. Your guide. It's like it's it's a fantastic way of life in this province, and um, you know, part of an economy that I would like to be able to see survive. Um, but anyways, um, 
the statement was made on behalf of um, GOABC that um, Scott said he disagrees with the premise that reducing moose will save the caribou. Uh, it's a very simplistic alternative trade theory. After 15 years of using that wildlife management approach, he said, do we have any more caribou in that area? No, we don't, end quote. So I talked to some caribou experts here uh, last night and pulled some information uh, from them, the ones that are actually working on these exact um, caribou recovery programs. And so here's, here's what I pulled out of this paper. Um, quote, uh, in Revelstoke, moose reduction by licensed hunters began in 2003. So who was in power in 2003? Um, which in turn reduced wolves and stabilized the caribou decline for the Columbia North Herd. In 2007, direct removal of wolves began as an additional caribou recovery measure. Since these wolf reductions began in combination with increased harvest of moose, caribou numbers have increased by about 4% per year, though these are early results. Additionally, the moose population has grown by 20% per year and the ratio of calves to cows have rapidly increased. That's in the, in the um, Columbia North um, caribou herd caribou recovery zone. Uh, in the parsnip area, a little farther north, which is another caribou recovery area, um, the uh, scientists report that this strategy of primary prey reduction um, did not appear to benefit caribou. Um, but then I also understand that was a zone that didn't wasn't coupled with uh, wolf control. Mm. So remember I said earlier, they were saying that if you just do primary peer reduction or you just do wolf doesn't control, work. you doesn't have to work. do all three. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, makes sense. So yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's the facts. That's what objective evidence is saying is going on. Um, and there's people out there, you know, throwing out stuff that's doubt mongering. Um, and that's leading to the confusion. It's leading to people being confused. And that's part of the whole thing that makes up this, uh, misplaced conservation. Um, so the BC liberal party's got this petition going on right now, um, that they want to get a whole bunch of names and take to the government to get this antlerless, um, season stopped. And I'm like a petition to stop a hunting season. Does that ring a bell yeah yeah i mean that's that's exactly what happened grizzly in the grizzly bear, bear territory hunt. yeah so there was the insight west independent poll of 76 percent of british columbians were against the grizzly bear <laughs> hunt and a political decision was made on an independent poll that was never verified yeah. could have been completely fabricated i dug into it i know they didn't use proper statistics when they did it but i mean that's the thing uh, about the dead cat, moose, uh, mother moose and baby thing that's happening right now um, is the way it's being laid out is exactly a page out of the playbook of the grizzly bear any hunting campaign. It's exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I acknowledge that this notion of, you know, decreasing one species to save in other species, rubs people the wrong way, rubs hunters the wrong way. I've said it before. 
Hunters like to believe that they're part of conservation and they're maintaining, sustaining, or helping increase populations. They're not playing in a role in decreasing them. Um, but, you know, those same, same people will always, um, you know, also advocate that hunting is a management tool. Yeah. And in this case of endangered species conservation, uh, hunting is being used as a management tool to help prevent global extinction of a unique subspecies of of the mountain caribou yeah and they have a right to voice their opinion i mean that's that's i have nothing against that it's um you know it's the exact same argument that andy hunters use uh when they argue well we don't need to kill wildlife to save wildlife you've heard that right yeah especially in the whole african trophy hunting uh arena um the Annie hunters will also argue that, uh, you know, we don't need hunting to pay for conservation. You know, I've heard that one. You know, oh, who else is paying for it? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's the whole thing that happened here in BC, you know, bear viewing versus bear hunting, right? I mean, they can, they can, you don't need, um, you know, to, to hunt or manage uh, animals through hunting. So, so, I mean, yeah, there's some kind of things to some logical parts of your argument to uh, take into consideration there and compare what what you believe against what the anti-hunters are saying as well so but at the end of the day I mean I don't have anything against anybody that doesn't that says we shouldn't harvest uh, females of a population um, I mean part of that I think is uh, you know people that hold that belief it's it's kind of a it's indoctrination of you know the sort of the western European philosophy of wildlife management that sort of formed the basis of wildlife management here in North America, which was very sort of agriculture based, right? So, um, and I hear a lot of people kind of when they talk about, well, you don't shoot does and cows because that's your breeding stock, right? And yeah. you kind of, it's, it's an agriculture um, sort of animal husbandry type philosophy that you've got this field and you got a bull yeah and you've got all these cows and it's like they create your crop for next year mm -hmm. right that's a closed system like they're sheltered from predators they're protected they're you know all this kind of stuff and yeah. it's a concept that just doesn't work in the wild you know um they die at a massive rate you know um, juvenile survival and a lot of species is very low, um, mortality and does is, you know, and females and stuff is, you know, it's very high. So it's like, it's not this real clear thing in nature that one offspring that's born this year as a female, uh, lives forever and produces, a you know, 20 animals into the population. Like, half those offspring don't even make it to their first birthday. I mean, that's yeah. the difference between the agriculture model. But, but anyways, I mean, that, that whole concept, um, is, you know, like I said, is kind of part and parcel of, um, the Western philosophy of wildlife management of like you harvest the males, the old males and you leave the, and, and I don't know, I think that's maybe part of what, why, why people believe that because that, you know, is sort of like quote unquote, what good wildlife management is. Um, but, uh, you know, but I think it is wrong to, if it is a legal hunt and it is sustainable to throw, 
you know, other hunters uh, under the bus because they are harvesting, legally harvesting an antlerless, an antlerless animal. And, um, you know, I kind of looked at the, this concept of, you know, female harvesting uh, in hunting and just kind of say, well, let's just step back a second, look at the logic here. So if deer, elk, and moose, it's like, it's a, it's the completely wrong thing to do to harvest uh, the females of the species, then, well, let's take a look at our other game species. So in bears, we're allowed to harvest females. Yeah. Sometimes people can't tell. So maybe we should be hunting bears because a certain percentage of the females are being taken. Mountain goats, they want you to take the billies, but you're allowed to take both. You're legally allowed to shoot a nanny mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't have a kid with it. Um, waterfall. <laughs> you know. Oh, man. Um, grouse. Grouse. <laughs> snowshoe hare. Yeah. I mean, can you go out there and pick out the female snowshoe hares and not take one and just take the males? And fish. I mean, people that go out and fish or whatever, like for food. It's yeah. like they're taking both. So, I mean... It happens across the board and everything that we're harvesting, you know, for for food. Um, I saw some social media comments where it said, you know, so somebody was kind of saying, you know, this whole thing of trying to recover these endangered caribou is just a waste of time and money. Like just, you know, and I'm like, well, okay, let's look around. Let's use that logic then. So here in the East Kootenays, we've got like a 60, 70% whatever it is, reduction in our elk population over the last 20, well, don't worry about them. Let them decline. Don't spend any money on them. Just let's, let's let elk in region four disappear. Same with our mule deer. They've never recovered since the bad winter of 85. Let them go. Got some bighorn sheep herds here in the East Kootenays that are 40 plus percent going down. Let them go. And provincially, like, hey, 90% 90% of our moose populations across the province of BC are declining. So let's not bother recovering them. So, Salmon steelhead. Yeah. Whole thing. I mean, it's there's 1,800 species of wildlife in British Columbia um, that are in decline. And it's like, I just can't see how that that argument has any, any merit. Um, and, you know, sort of on the topic of, uh, you know, the 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 female harvest you know i look at indigenous hunters and they have been managing their game populations in north america for tens thousands of years and from what i understand is a tremendous amount of the emphasis of sustenance hunting has been on the female harvest and if you go back to the episode we did with jack brink yeah, I was just thinking about that. On the bison, and he Harvest talks about females. that. It's The focus was on, yeah. you know, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, so, you know, as an indigenous wildlife management system, I mean, they know what they were doing. And, um, you know, even under the Western management philosophy, um, they've been harvesting antlers and animals, antlerless animals in North America, everywhere um through regulated hunting and science you know like i said earlier in the show so um so yeah i mean if those are your beliefs like that's fine um that's just me um 
that. I'm just being open about what I believe. Um, but I'm open to having a constructive dialogue with, you know, with anybody about this stuff. So, um, you know, to, to kind of throw in some conclusions here on, on the dead cat issue, I think what this is highlighting for me is a number of things. And it's highlighting to me that we need to get wildlife management away from politicians in this province. Yeah. Um, I really think we need to move to the independent game commission system, uh, a regional model of wildlife management with First Nations, something along that line. It is just way too political uh, in this province, and I think we need some changes there. I think everybody should be advocating to make wildlife and biodiversity conservation in British Columbia less political because the political way of doing it is not really got us on a great trajectory. One of the other things I believe that is severely lacking and the dead cat issue here highlights that is we do not have a really equitable public input process in BC for wildlife management and conservation. And Rob Soroya talked about this in, in our, um, our podcast with him last summer. And, you know, when he was talking about the caribou recovery plans in, you know, the North Revy area, at, he said, really the system should, the process should allow the scientists to come in and say, based on the data, here's your options. Yeah. Option A, pros and cons, these are the trade-offs, these are the consequences, risks, benefits, and lay out the different options. Forestry versus caribou, moose versus caribou, wolves, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? Uh, recreation in the backcountry, all those things. And the, that should be laid out, and people should be able to inform themselves on that and then come back to the table and advocate to their local regional game commissioners or, or whatever, what the public would like to see, what mm-hmm. they're willing to accept. That does not exist here in BC. The best we kind of have is a public process where people fight over the hunting regulations for a couple of months each each fall yeah. you know, at, the, at the table. Um, one of the other things that this really brings, uh, brings to light for me anyways, and did, did you watch uh, Clay Newcomb's presentation for BHA last week? On bear uh, I did, yes. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of flipping back between. Back and forth? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's so cool. Yeah. Um, so Clay Newcomb is the uh, uh, editor-owner of uh, Bear Hunting Magazine and the Bear Hunting Podcast uh, out of Arkansas. Um, avid, avid bear hunter, avid supporter of conservation. And he did a presentation last week in the BHA Rendezvous where he was basically teaching people how to hunt black bears. Um, it was really cool. Um, but he basically said something and he said, he said, we need to, hunters need to support the hunting that we have today because everything that we have today has been through the ringer of hundreds of years of public and scientific scrutiny in the North American wildlife model, but everything that we do to hunt and what we're hunting and how we're hunting it and the amount that we're taking is sustainable and it is ethical. And he's saying, that's why we need to support yeah. what everybody does. You don't have to do it, 
but we need to support what we have right now. And I think that was a really good message and that's something I believe in as well. If we are doing something that, you know, um, people want to have a conversation about, great, let's have a conversation and we all agree to advocate for change, then we do that. But let's support, you know, uh, what we have now because it's defensible. And, you know, if you're a hunter out there and you're listening to this and you're kind of like, oh man, what, you know, do I have a doe tag or an antlerless tag or whatever? If you're a food hunter, go fill your tag this fall, 100%. Be proud of it. If you're hunting for food, there's nothing more honorable than going out and harvesting and bringing home your own meat. It is what hunting's about. It's been going on for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Um, they've been out hunting for food, harvesting antlerless animals, and, you know, they weren't targeting antlered animals, you know, for tens of thousands of years. It got human beings to where we are. It is ethical. It's moral. Follow the hunting regulations. Get your LAH authorization and go do it while you can. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, this whole concept about antlerless animal hunting I I see that this is going to become a bigger reality in North America because of chronic wasting disease. And the more and more of the science that I'm seeing of what chronic wasting d- disease does in populations, yeah. it targets bucks. And in high CWD zones, like you can have as high as 50 to 70% of the mature adult bucks have got chronic wasting disease. It's like, yeah, they're going to die. So it's like, but basically if we're targeting those and hunting those, we're hunting for a set of antlers because you're going to get a result back that says, you know, it's positive. positive. So when there's fewer of them, fewer bucks, uh, fewer big bucks, they still live a long time when they get and they can do a tremendous amount of breeding, but that, that segment of the population is being impacted. Yeah. The least impacted or the lowest prevalence rate, like in white-tailed deer, is in adult females. So it's like, if you want to maintain a sustainable hunt in the future in high CWD zones in North America, I am prepared to see a shift in management in North America in those high CWD zones to antlerless-only animals. Mm. So there's a higher probability of the animal that's being taken is meat that's fine for you to consume and that you're not adding through hunting to the portion of the population that's breeding does that's being taken out by CWD. Yeah. So um, I think it's something that's going to become more important, and I think it's something that we might want to get a little bit more, um, get our heads wrapped around, maybe open up, change the belief system, and be a little bit more uh, open to it. So another final thought here kind of around around this issue Um so in the United States this week, um, the Great American Outdoor Act is in the Senate. It has gone through its first reading and vote and passed on the Senate floor. I think they're on their second right now. Should pass and be off to the president to, to sign. So if you're not following this or you don't know what's going on, the Great American Outdoor Act has been something that BHA and hunters and non-hunters have been working under a big tent envelope in the United States to develop and push a bill into the Senate for public land conservation. And they're on the doorstep of getting approval for 
$900 million a year money in perpetuity will go into what they have. It's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And that is royalty money from offshore oil and gas revenues in the United States. $900 million a year go into the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It will now be law that has to happen every year. That is not taxpayers' money. It's oil and gas royalties off public resource. And that now gets turned back into conservation and management of public land and resources in the United States. In addition, that bill contains a commitment for $1.9 or $1.5 billion over the next five years for the maintenance of backlog infrastructure issues in their national parks and public lands. Um, they're still actually saying that they could use more. Um, but this is what big stuff that can happen when hunters and non-hunters are working together on the biggest priority issues facing hunting and conservation and access to public lands under this big big tent process that is absolutely mind-boggling numbers to, to think about having something like that here in British Columbia that amount of money um, so this is what happens when um, you know when hunters aren't dead cat conditioned yeah you know, they've been working on this for like years down in the States. Um, it's it's a great thing, and it just shows you what what can be done. So, you know, bottom line on this moose issue, um, I really think the BC Liberal Party is playing partisan politics, and they're playing partisan politics with our fish and wildlife and with our hunting way of life. Um, man, you guys can go off and play politics, you know, get reelected and attack each other, you know, about your... your um, you know, your expense bills, budgets, and all this kind of stuff. But don't screw with the management of our public wildlife and our social li license for hunting for your political gain. Mm. Um, you know, I, I can look at people's actions, you know, and go, eh, it wasn't a smart thing to do, but I understand that your intent was good. And just the way you tried to deliver that was not so good, and I can be understanding for that. But I mean, I think here um, the intent, the intent uh, is political, in my opinion, and it's not about public resource. Uh, it's not about the future of hunting. It's not about the future of moose populations. It's about getting into power in the next election. And honestly, I think the BC Liberal Party owes the hunters of British Columbia an apology for deploying this grizzly bear band style campaign on us right now. Yeah. Um, and if you believe that um, right or message, um, Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the BC Liberal Party, and tell him this. Um, even if you are an advocate for not having antlerless hunting anywhere, I'm okay with that. But you should be able to see that the campaign that they've chosen to go about doing that is hurting us. They're framing us in a bad light that affects or erodes our social license because, well, of course, we're out there killing newborn calves right now, right? Yeah. How many people in the province of BC actually think that's a real thing right now? And now we've got a lie that's out there that's going to go deeper and farther than the truth. And that's going to be hard for us as a hunting community to reel that back and tell people, no, 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 we're not killing these little baby moose in the springtime, right? Or, or, or both the mother and the baby. Yeah. So, um, 
that that's that was an out like I said before us that's, that's a page out of the out of the grizzly bear band playbook and yeah um, whether you're for or against antlerless hunting science caribou recovery whatever um, I think we've been thrown under the bus here uh, if the Liberal Party wants to sit down with us as hunters and talk about the public trust, trust doctrine and that's great let's do that hey if you want to come on this podcast and tell everybody uh, what you're going to do for uh, fish wildlife and habitat uh, then give me a call I'll have you on the show um, but uh, you know I, I just want to make it clear um, you know I've been kind of beating on the BC Liberal Party uh, I'm not playing politics here like I'm not trying to sway or endorse one political party over the other um, I don't care like I mean my lens on the world uh, politically is is this is this good or bad for hunting and fishing? Is this good or bad for wildlife and fish and habitat? That's how I tend to look at stuff. I'm not, I'm not one way or the other. Um, I've yet to see a political party in BC with a really honest commitment to conservation and our hunting way of life. So um, I'm not endorsing anybody. Um, I'm criticizing the dead cat campaign that came out. Um, so I was looking on the internet. There's a lot of political parties in British Columbia. Hmm. Um, so there's the BC sex party. <laughs> and so, um, I think maybe the next election comes around and might give Go them a them. call and, <laughs> and kind of see what their position is on, uh, wildlife. dedicated funding for wildlife management and, you know, and, uh, you know, hunting for, for, uh, for food and that sort of thing. So I don't know, maybe we got a, got a better chance there, but. Um, you know, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not a political person, but you know, at the end of the day, I will stand up for hunters and I'll stand up for our way of life because it's honorable and it's sustainable. Um, but right now I feel like we were stabbed in the back with this dead cat campaign. Where does the conversation in British Columbia need to be? Um, I think we really need to start focusing intensely on recovering wildlife populations and growing hunting in this province, um, and to sustain the ability of British Columbia residents to fill their freezers with wild food. I mean, do you do you not think that it's just weird that in all of this conversation that's been going on, this controversy, that no one is talking about recovering the rest of the 90% of the moose population in the province that's in decline? Yeah. I mean, we're literally talking about like 43 tags in the North Revelstoke zone, like antlerless tags on a system that's that's got a decreasing amount of hourless harvest and coupled with the wolf control, it is showing a positive response in a game species that's endangered, that's about to go extinct, that I want to see here for future generations. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, that's where the dead cat has us hung up, but no one is having the bigger conversation about what the hell are we doing for the rest of the moose populations? Yeah. Um, where's the plan? Where's the money? Where's the, you know, everything. Um, and we need money for wildlife management in BC. Uh, man, I just, uh, I just love what they're getting down in the United States here. I'm just, uh, I'm really happy for them. Um, they're so passionate about hunting and fishing in their public lands in the U S. Um, it's just amazing. Congratulations down there for, um, getting the great, great American outdoors act passed. Uh, are about to get it passed. You know, I've heard that here in British Columbia, uh, our Fish and Wildlife branch does not even have enough money to print the hunting regulations this year. P 
apparently the printed copies are not going to be available. You're going to have to get a PDF version on your phone. So maybe I'm wrong. That's just what I've heard. Um, so when I go to the balcony and I look down and you want to talk about what the biggest, biggest issue um, that we have or the conversation needs to be happening, yes, we need to be recovering our wildlife populations and have objectives and a plan around that. My biggest issue is this, and it is this systematic defunding of natural resource management, environmental protection, and fish and wildlife management that's been going on for 40 or 50 years in this province. It spans political group. It spans government. There has been a systematic government after government after government decreasing the amount of funding that is available for the management and protection of our natural resources. And I honestly, when I look at the graphs of where we're headed, I think we're within a decade of having no money to manage or protect natural resources, the environment in this province. And that means one thing to me. And there is a destiny in this province politically that, that transcends parties for privatization of public land in BC. Hmm. I, I can see no other reason for the yeah. continual defunding and dismantling of that stuff. Yeah. Um, this is something I'm keeping a really, really close eye on um, where things like this are headed. I mean, this isn't, this isn't out there a lot, but I mean, you know, some of the world's largest investment funds uh, are talking to British Columbia. They want into our economy. Um, this whole thing about British Columbia's uh, carbon-free economy and our mining industry and, and stuff is really attracting attention of, of investment funds that are pulling out of um, oil sands and all this sort of stuff. And they want into BC. And they want into BC. They want into BC for the exploitation of our natural resources. Um, they're not here to go viewing. So um, Canada, you need to have your eyes wide open here um, about what's happening. And that's why I encourage you, um, go watch that film, Public Trust, yeah. Patagonia, and just picture us in that situation because I think we're going to end up there. So um, we need that big tent. We need that big tent where everybody needs to be working together Um I got a goal of seeing a billion dollars a year in natural resource management for fish, wildlife, and biodiversity conservation within the next decade. Um, that's a big goal. Um, I believe our natural resource royalty system can pay for conservation. A billion dollars, I think, is affordable. Um, and it's affordable to maintain conservation, fish, wildlife, hunting way of life. Um, without sacrificing um, our resource economy. It's, it's doable. We don't need to destroy all of this stuff to have an economy. So, and I think the conversations about the future of hunting, um, current wildlife management, wildlife conservation needs to be done in an arena, an arena of respectful regard. This uh, hunter, throwing hunters under the bus thing, I think we really need to kind of move past that. And um, I think man, I think we can do better than swarming around dead cats. So my advice to you all is um, on this moose hunting debacle that there's no dead cat here worth looking at. Go focus on big stuff that'll make a difference to future generations in this province. Hope that was a useful way of looking at the issues. Um, tried to bring some facts and truth and be open about what my biases and beliefs are and kind of frame that in 
Dr. Ford's framework of misguided, misplaced conservation. So mm-hmm. hopefully we get an A at him. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's really important here is, um, you know, being part of somebody, being part of an organization that's fighting this fight for you. Um, I really advocate for you to join backcountry hunters and anglers, um, create organization. They're on the verge of developing a Canadian, um, parent organization. I also firmly believe, um, to be a member of your provincial, um, fish wildlife federation, fish and game association. They're still in the political arena fighting for hunters and anglers. So belong to both. Um, they're, they're doing a lot for us and they need your support. So um hey man uh i got episode three out of the round canada podcast now hopefully um you guys are following that if you don't know about it uh, round canada podcast on itunes stitcher spotify and google podcast now um they're kind of short uh podcasts that kind of go around the country and kind of give you updates on what's going on in uh um wildlife science conservation and responsible hunting in the country I'd also really encourage you, if you're a new hunter and you're listening to this, uh, you like to learn about hunting, uh, Dylan over at Eat Wild BC is uh, really getting his game on for um, hunter training videos, online virtual uh, hunting videos. He's got one out he's doing right now on still hunting in timber. Um, I know he just did that a couple nights ago. I don't know if he's going to run it again, but um, go go over and find out what Dylan's doing there and join um his um hunter training he is probably the best hunting mentor i know of and he is so passionate about helping you um go go check him out probably couldn't find a guy you'd learn more from if you're a new hunter Uh, ducks unlimited canada is having another um, virtual fundraising event that um, dylan and i will actually be hosting on june 29th it's a virtual event uh, called wild game and healthy living uh, it's part of the COVID way of trying to um, generate some funds for wetland conservation and duck habitat protection in Canada. So go on to the ducks.ca website and sign up and hopefully we'll see you on June 29th, the evening of that. And uh, Curtis, you got a bit of stuff about um, fishing? Yeah. Um, so first and foremost... Um Today, the day that the podcast is released, June 15th, uh, in Region 4, all the classified waters have reopened to fishing. Uh, so if you're going to go out and partake in that, make sure you have your classified waters license as well as your basic license, uh, single barbless hooks uh, in all the rivers. Um, and yeah, the guiding season's fast approaching. You know, myself, I'm a, I'm a fishing guide, and from every other guide that I've talked to, it's uh the whole covid thing you know it's the there's a lot of uncertainty going into the season most of our clientele are people from the states um and if the border situation keeps going the way it's going they're not going to be able to come up and join us um you know maybe later in the summer if things relax a bit we might get uh get some late season stuff but as of right now anyways it looks like the first first half of our season is going to be pretty slim uh, so if you are looking to do your summer fun activities, um, if you've never gotten into fly fishing and you've always wanted to learn, now is kind of the best time. 
Um, if you have the means and you just want to support some local people, whether you're anywhere across the country, um, get a hold of your local fly fishing guide or outfitter and uh, book a trip with them. You know, whether, like I said, you want to learn how to fly fish or, you know, you've, you've always fished the same river, but you just want to have somebody row you down the river while you get to fish. Um, tie your flies on your hook. Tie your you? flies on your hook. Yeah. Give you some pointers, learn, learn the waters that you've already fished even better. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend if you, if you have the means and the time, uh, book, book a day or two with a great, local fishing guide. Great staycation opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and when you got into this and we got our, we got our, uh, raft and we got onto the rivers, this is the first time in my life I ever fished that way. And if you've never drift fished on a river in British Columbia in your home waters, you need to go do it because you are missing 99% of the beauty of our yeah. river systems that are out there. And yeah. it is a beautiful, beautiful way to fish. Yeah. So... Yeah, if you can, uh, you have the time, you have the resources to do it, book a trip with a local guide or local outfitter. Uh, I can speak for pretty much every uh, everybody that I know in the industry. They'll greatly, uh, greatly appreciate it. It's a fun day to get out and experience our natural resources. Absolutely. Great message. Uh, if you listened to the last podcast uh, with Adam, um, you probably heard the story where uh, Curtis's fly rod got broken by his dog in his truck. So he's got no fly rod right now. He had to go buy another one. It's about the third or fourth one that your dog has broken the cab of your truck. So, um, yeah. so anyways, if you all want to write in to me and place a bet on the date that this new fishing rod <laughs> is going to get broke, the closest person to that date, uh, Curtis will send you a Hunter Conservationist hat and t-shirt. So this episode was about kind of the quest for truth and honesty and wildlife management. And uh, I just want to leave you with one thing. And this is another quote from uh, astrophysicist uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, he just posted this uh, a few weeks ago. I dream of a world where truth shapes people's politics rather than politics shaping what people think is true. All right, everyone, we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>